It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at seboc.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts at seboc.com. Welcome. I'm Dr. Jeremy Lokabaugh, Industrial Organizational Psychology Consultant and Workplace Communication and Negotiation Coach. In addition to seboc.com that you just heard, you can also visit my website at turnboot.com. If you're in or getting into the IO psychology field and you feel a little lost in the crowd, you're looking to jumpstart your career and maybe get the answers that your degree program never gave you about what it's actually like to work as an IO psych practitioner, check out CBOC's IO Career Pathfinder membership at cboc.com. Also, we have Tom Bradshaw, voice and speech coach and a damn good actor at that. He is the leading voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. And a huge welcome to Dr. Destiny Preet, who will be leading today's discussion. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Destiny Preet, and I'm excited to talk about today's topic, which is new social norms in the workplace, communication and behavior. And I was talking a little bit before this started about how interesting the research is out there. So, and I'm excited to talk about that. But first, I kind of wanted to make an announcement. Uh, CBOC, I don't know if you saw, I've been doing a IO Psychology Awareness Month, unofficial, this entire, the entire month of August to just really bring to light our field and draw some excitement and provide some clarity out there to organizations, leaders who are like, what is this IO stuff? Like, who is this? Who are they? So I created Post Daily. And so yesterday, uh, CBOC uh, and I have announced that we're going to officially establish August as IO Psychology Awareness Month moving forward. So look forward to next August. However, every week leading up until then, we plan on providing good content, opportunities to engage and to really give everyone in the community an opportunity to come forward, engage, you know, show up as experts and build community and support, and then maybe even lead into pathways of opportunity. So lots of excitement there. Um, So Tom, am I missing anything? No, I think you're doing great. Oh, look at that. (laughs) You know, all right. So should I get started with some of the research I found? Yeah, let's get going. What what did you find out? So when I typed in new social norms and workplace communication behavior, simple search into, you know, research platforms, a couple of titles came up. And I'm just going to share these titles with you all, because I think these titles are going to spur some thoughts, maybe even some emotions and feelings about it. So um, several peer-reviewed articles about these topics. First one is, could you sit down, please? A qualitative analysis of employees' experiences of standing in normally seated workplace meetings. Hmm, interesting. The next one was exploring the effects of promoting political correctedness in the workplace. Another one was cyber loafing in the workplace, mitigation tactics and their impact on individuals' behavior. And then the last one, well, there's two more, how a social network profile affects employers' impressions of the candidate, an application of norm evaluation, and workplace deviance in the virtual workplace. So 
I know when I read those titles, I was a little like, oh, I got a lot of feelings about a lot of this, you know, because some of those topics can feel very controversial, particularly the political correctedness one. So, and I can share some results of studies if people are interested. But one thing I did want to share before we move, because think about the way that the workforce has transformed, because we talked about uh, we talk about work, working from home all the time. And, you know, now people are standing beside behind their desk and things like that. But consider this idea that, you know, uh, there was a qualitative study done, 25 participants volunteered to stand in three separate seated meetings that they were already scheduled to attend. They were instructed to stand when and for however long they deemed appropriate and gave semi-structured interviews after the meeting. Verbatim transcripts were analyzed and four things were found, including physical challenges to standing, implications of standing for meeting engagement, standing as a norm violation, and standing as an appropriation of power. So many participants experienced psychological discomfort due to concern at being seen to be violating a strong perceived sitting norm. While standing when leading the meeting was felt to confer a sense of power and control, when not leading meeting, the participants felt uncomfortable at being misperceived to be challenging the authority of other attendees. So how interesting is that? Uh, it's, <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's really interesting, but, but all my thoughts go back to, well, yeah, of course, uh, because it's, to me anyways, you know, coming from the theater world, dealing with status. So, you know, someone who's, who's standing up has higher status. And I can understand why, you know, when you're up leading the discussion, it's a great place to be. But once you're finished and someone else is talking, if they're sitting and you're standing still, you, you haven't given them the floor. So to me, at least that makes perfect sense. What, what was your reaction to it? I mean, I felt that way, right? But I felt like, well, how has that changed since we're talking about remote settings, right? Does that mm. still apply? You know, if I, like, how does, and how does that apply? Like the other day I sat in a meeting where there was a bunch of people on a virtual setting and then there was people sitting at a desk, like in an actual, so one of the screens was people at a desk, like at a big conference table. And one of the people was in the background standing and I actually was like, I wonder what they're doing. <laughs> it was distracting. Uh, and so, but then I thought about like how that felt for the people like in that meeting that were seeing the people on the, so I, I just thought about, you know, how that may, might have even changed over the last few years. Well, I know that, you know, looking at people doing this online and with their computer screens, uh, we get the same sort of effect. If, if we're not like you and I right now, our cameras are eye level. So we're having a conversation on a, a, a level playing field. But those people who take their laptop and sit down at their desk, and now I'm looking down, and you as the viewer are looking up, uh, you know, they have the higher status. And I will, you know, well, that's important to know because sometimes you might want to use it. Generally, you don't want to use that angle because it's a, a horrible angle, it makes you look bad. <laughs> I don't want to look up your nose. And, you know, it's the, if you think back to horror movies, when the evil villain comes on for the first time on screen, usually they're using that angle so that they look, you know, even more scary than, than usual. Uh, so, yeah, it's, you know, you, it doesn't have to be standing or sitting. You can do the same thing with your computer. Uh, Linda Ann, let's go to you. 
So when I see someone standing in a in a situation, whether it's in a meeting, some people stand, you know, for whatever reason, and and then there's a lot of people now that have their standing desks and it moves up and down with them. <clears throat> and I'm always uh, go my brain for whatever because of my background goes to the uh, physical comfort of the individual and the ergonomics of that and people who have back problems and things like. You know, so and their compensation for it. So you don't know if they just spent the last two hours sitting at a desk and now they need to stand. Uh, so that's where my brain goes initially. Not so much. However, I am very when I do go into sitting at a conference table and and so forth. I am very conscious of where I sit, who I sit next to, why I sit next to them, all of those things because they all have implications. Do you think people know and understand that? Like there's, a, you know, we could write a book about where you sit, how you sit, who you're sitting next to, where the power is. Do you think that generally people have that knowledge and information or do you think it's a little bit of hidden knowledge that the majority of people don't know about? I think, I think a lot of people don't know about it, but I think some people get educated and when I would, when I would work with um, leaders, right, who were trying to address issues with team members, I would advise them on how to sit, where to sit, so that it was not confrontational and things like that. So part of my coaching with individuals was teaching them about those dynamics. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great knowledge that I think everybody should have. Uh, Brendan, let's go to you. So this might be off topic, but I think it's in a similar vein is that I've had, you know, consulting gigs where they have the uh, HR office close to the leadership wing. And it's actually been quite a problem because then people don't go to HR because then leadership sees that they're going to HR. And now what's the issue? So definitely touching on that same sort of dynamics of those types of things, even the office location, if you're in a physical office can can lead to you know, better engagement or less engagement simply because someone might be afraid to go talk to this person if they have to pass this person's office. And then it's like, what was that person talking to you about? So that's definitely something to think about as well. Yeah, I, until you mentioned that thought never even crossed my mind. Um, Linda, let's go back to you. So I, I think that's, Brendan, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, that is, that can be a real issue, but it also depends on the culture, you know, and I've always been really careful about how, if I ask people to come to my office, that it was never the same kind of issues that was bringing them, that were, was um, bringing them to my office so that there was never this, oh, you're, you're going to the principal's office kind of environment, you know? So it depends on how you, as an HR person, or if you're on site as a organizational development person, uh, I think it depends on how you establish that relationship and that culture for the environment there. Well, let me go back to you, Dr. Destiny, because you know, we're talking about norms. Is there a norm? Is there like a written guidebook of when you stand, when you sit? I think it's interesting you ask that. I, I think most people have felt a certain type of way in an environment that kind of dictates their own playbook. 
um, to be honest. And I know like, you know, Lindy Ann mentioned that she has maybe even advised clients and then someone, um, I think, uh, in the chat mentioned that there is definitely different cultural norms that tie into all of this too. Uh, and I know that for sure, you know, my background is in the military. And so you don't stand in a meeting unless like you got to get out of there because <laughs> <laughs> it can be very power play, you know, depending. Um, but and, and the same thing back to that whole idea of like where the offices are located, you know, are they uh, that is incredibly powerful for an organization because, you know, you might be asking, why aren't employees coming? Why aren't people bringing things up? And it can be anything from sitting or standing in a meeting to where, you know, offices are located. So think about how much importance you should kind of give that because maybe that's something that you've never thought. And maybe it can, you can kind of correlate some, some events that might be happening or occurring. Well, we, we, we should be thinking about these things, but most people don't. Um, <laughs> so, so Linda, Ann, how do we get, you know, how do we reach into the HR and go, you got to start thinking about these things? Well, I was just, before I start there, I was just going to mention, you know, there are some organizations that are implementing agile project management, scrum, those kinds of things. And those are pretty much designate that you all stand doing during your meeting so that there's not this comfort level and it's a way of controlling the amount of time that the meeting takes and the focus of the meeting. So if you have a team member, have team members that are used to doing that on a regular basis, that might really shift the comfort level within the organization about how people approach someone standing in a, in a particular meeting. I've also found that, you know, working with uh, young artists and like young actors, boy if you want to get them get their creative juices flowing get them out of their chair get them on their feet and it seems to because you know maybe because the breath is easier when you're standing uh, maybe because on your feet you have to think quicker or something but it just seems to work are you seeing the same sort of thing that if you have people standing in a meeting that their creative juices actually get better or do you get people standing up going i wish i could sit down right now I don't, I don't really have um, that much to, to add to that kind of conversation. I don't have that experience. I don't know if someone else does. Well, it looks like Amanda might. <laughs> Go ahead, Amanda. Hi, thanks. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I have actually tried uh, walking meetings and walking brainstorming. Um, and I will tell you, getting people out of their normal complacency office where they're just like, you know what, I, you know, just very comfortable, like, okay, let's get the juices flowing, let's get walking. Um, so then it's kind of like merging the what you would do for camaraderie, in addition to uh, doing some brainstorming. And normally, it's like only one agenda item. I would put on the agenda for like a walking meeting with maybe no more than two or three people. Uh, but you need to have the tech with you in order to make notes. So I have found that voice recording, not the conversation, but making voice memos like, oh, that's a great idea. Here, can you say that again? And then we would just capture it and then um, dic um, transcribe the notes a little bit later. So yeah, I have found that it is above and beyond for like brainstorming um, or even if you use like some sort of physical activity moving game, there's this thing that I was introduced from 
and it's kind of up your alley, Stevie Ray's comedy cabaret um, here in the Twin Cities. But you have like this uh, volleyball that's got like a bunch of questions and you say you just pass it around and you have to answer questions that your right thumb or left thumb hit. And then it just like it's it's just um, a way to get people's um, brains moving in order to be preparatory for that um, brainstorming. But physical activity or even just standing, I have found, has been very helpful for the folks I work with. So let me ask you then, because, you know, we to me, anyways, it feels like we're in a phase where all of the old rules about how we worked, you know, before the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, we can throw those all out now. You know, there there are people who are still demanding that everybody come back to the office because I'm a manager. And if I can't see you, I can't manage you because I don't want to learn. <laughs> but we now have the, a, a time in history where we can go, hey, there's more productive and better ways to work. So do we need to write a new book about these social norms, about how we want to do business? And do we want to point out things like, boy, if you want to have a meeting, get up and go for a walk. What do you think, Amanda? Can so, you write that book? <laughs> uh, uh, so my sort of ideas go back to what Linda Ann keeps pointing out about culture. And my whole thing is what best fits the organization or the office that you're working with, or the division even. Um, because the stance in which the agency I'm working for takes is it's an employee-centered um, design approach, is what does the employee need? And there still needs to be the ability to balance. And one office has taken a really novel approach of, you know, putting a guide together, a first stepping grounds of moving into what this new normal may be. But in order to do it successfully, the director that did this just astonished me, and I keep giving him accolades about it, where he did a grassroots approach, is he ended up interviewing um, his supervisors and managers, finding out what people want. He did a survey to find out what his entire office is wanting, um, and that was like an office of 100 folks, and he's finding a way to try to balancing everything in addition to, you know, balancing what generation. So if we're talking about like Um, individual difference impacts, Uh, boomers and some Gen Xers still prefer that face-to-face because there is, um, I won't say discomfort with tech, but just not as much proficiency as maybe um, later um, Gen Xers or millennials where they prefer the indirect communication. But that's not everybody. So in order to balance it both, it's requiring both sides to flex. It's So I wouldn't say that we should stamp that these norms are for everybody because it might not work for everybody um but encouraging evidence-based practices absolutely and through that we can like each team can form their own guide of how to work oh absolutely which would actually work a lot better <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> linda Ann, let's go to you and then brendan we're over to you so in in thinking about this topic today i was challenged a little bit between the difference between social norms and workplace norms. And I think that for um, a long time, we had social norms that applied in the workplace, right? How you dressed going to work, how you did certain things and so forth. But I think that there's becoming a real separation between what are our social norms and what are our workplace norms. And I think the workplace norms are more specific to the individual company and environment and how how we move forward and i don't think we can even talk about norms yet because there's so much movement in 
trying to figure out what we want that to be for our particular company, what I found was really that the biggest challenge is the people's ability to communicate, their skill levels in communication and how that's really working within whatever the communication norms or the workplace norms are for that organization. When it comes down to it, you still have to be good at communication. And, and a lot of people aren't. <laughs> um, at least that's what I find. And, you know, it was interesting pre-pandemic going to work in coffee shops because, you know, you could start to see the transition. And I would notice people in their 20s and 30s dressed very casually, you know, working from a coffee shop. But I noticed that most of the people my age were still going to the coffee shop in a suit and tie. <laughs> and I was like, grab some freedom. Uh, Brendan, let's go to you. So something that Camilla had said that I definitely want to touch on is that definitely the the cultural norms come into play because I, I worked with somebody who was from Abu Dhabi and whenever he knew it was going to be a stressful conversation, it was, it was, let's take a walk. That was always how we started out. And it was always so helpful because it's like you're moving. So you're not sitting at a desk getting all fidgety and those types of things. You're out moving. So it helps to get that stress out. And then just touching on what Linda Ann said about and Amanda said about, you know, generational differences, um, I'm, I'm going to probably engage with a client that I currently have where they have this common issue where they have older supervisors who are perpetuating a, well, this is how I was treated. So this is how I have to treat everybody. And your engagement is going to go through the floor and then some. So very important to break those norms and break those engagement. And, and the biggest thing we're going to do with that client is train them that that's not the way to do things. This is how you lose talent. And this is how you jack up your turnover rates. You know, it's really interesting that you mentioned that uh, building a new program for acting students, myself and my colleagues, one of the things that we made a cornerstone of developing a new program was we weren't going to treat students the way we were treated because <laughs> we were treated horribly. And we knew that. Uh, and so I think you're absolutely right that business, especially, you know, I hate to go back to the age thing, but people my age, we have to learn that just because we did it that way doesn't mean there's not a better way to do it. Um, and, you know, people who are younger than us, they're really smart. Uh, speaking of which, Camilo, let's go to you. Speaking of younger and smart, thank you. <laughs> Uh, I do believe that there's a significant amount of uh, flexibility and adaptability that needs to be considered whenever uh, we establish norms and uh, organizational cultures. I do think in the conversation that we had had so far that um, we are mentioning things here and there about diversity and inclusion uh, that requires uh, what I, I consider the most important thing within our profession, which is identify, help identify, help our clients identify their purpose, their uh, really, really their values, not necessarily the how, but the what and the why, um, and be flexible about that. Be flexible and considerate about those uh, norms and that will become eventually culture. We need to cons be conscious and remind the client and the people within uh, the organization to uh, remember the factor of flexibility when it comes to establishing those 
culture values, what is important for you might necessarily be the most important thing for this uh, rest of the group, et cetera. So that part of inclusion and, and uh, equity uh, added to the, the why and the purpose, I, I do consider that there are significant uh, moments that we need to remember and not just focus on what is the norm or what is the, be- the, the next norm because it will change eventually. Yeah, I, you know, instead of how have we done it in the past, how are we going to do it now, especially with this diversity of people sitting together trying to communicate? Uh, Lee, let's go to you. You know, talking about the generations and, you know, how things change, you know, uh, you know, in the military, we have, you know, norms are pretty standard and they don't change very quickly until they're made to. And, uh, I know in the Navy we had uh, there was an incident several years back where there was some some stuff with uh, you know some some hazing and some sexual harassment and some other things that just blew up and it kind of forced a culture change and uh, I can remember when when I went through you know my uh, chief initiation about I was right in that transition where you know used to be there was this huge amount of hazing and mistreatment and all this kind of stuff and it was you know, trial by fire and all that kind of stuff. And we were right in that turnover where they're like, you know, they're preaching, Oh, we can't do this anymore. And then, but you still have people doing it. And then, you know, we had a sponsor and I remember going to my sponsor with the Navy's anti-hazing policy and saying, have you read this? Because I have, and let me point out some things that are going on and it's not okay. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the look on his face was priceless. In fact, there was like the blast radius on the wall behind him after I got through, through, you know, unloading, but um, we were forced and there were a lot of people who were forced out because they couldn't make that change. They could not. And a lot of them were, this was done to me. Therefore I shall do it to those behind me. And, you know, like you said, I can't do that. So uh, yeah, it's really, it, it really is interesting to, to look at the difference between a voluntary and an enforced change. Well, Dr. Destiny, let me come back to you on that because one thing I've discovered with talking to leaders in the remote only field is that, you know, CEOs, the leadership, they want to change. They, they want to see their employees going to a more remote setting because it saves them a lot of money and productivity actually seems to increase. But it's the managers who are the stumbling block. So is it the employees that have to start to get vocal? And going, you know, not just with remote work, but in cultural changes, you know, this is, this may be how we, you know, this organization has worked for the last 50 years, but we need to reshape it for the future. That's a good question. I think that, you know, not only does it kind of fall on the employees to speak up, I mean, because, you know, if they don't, then it's going to keep, the wheel's going to keep on spinning and people are going to get frustrated and they're going to self-select out or they're going to, you know, I hate to bring it in, but we're going to talk about, we're probably going to talk about quiet quitting and things like that. Right. And so all those things start to happen and managers look around and go, why aren't my people performing like they can and what can we do better? So it also falls on the managers to really stop and, and, and reassess at all. Get like, I think it's important to have that as part of your, I call it a battle rhythm, your iterative process, you know, stopping, looking around, assessing and seeing. And part of that assessment process should be built in like to a, you know, ask your people, ask if it's working, 
ask them how they feel about things, you know, be concerned about their, their, you know, psychological states or psychological safety, all of those things that keep popping up and, and, you know, all of these uh, keywords, trending topics, but they're all important and relative to what's happening. So I think it falls, you know, employees, managers, and, and all the in-betweens and, and definitely at the top, if you want to know why, then maybe you start with asking and looking around. Start asking some questions. You you might not like what you find out, but at least you'll find out. Uh, Exactly. Linda Linda Ann, let's go to you. So one of the things that I look at when there's a behavior or something that seems to be in discord or um, not working, and I always go back to where does the behavior come from? What was what was how was that person raised? You know, what is their story background? And when you look at, there was a lot of consistency in how people were raised from the boomers and, and previous, right? There was a lot of authority um, kind of behaviors and things like that. Maybe even to some of the late, you know, the older millennials. But the people that we're talking about now, the younger millennials, the Gen Zs, people were coming into the work. Those for the most part, was, was not their experience of upbringing. So to c- put them into a workforce where there's an authority kind of management structure creates discord and doesn't work for them. And so there needs to be some awareness of this is not what their experience and they don't, doesn't work for getting the best out of them. And so I think that people really need to look at where do some of these behaviors and expectations come from because that's how, uh, they were trained and raised to function. And there's there's fewer and fewer people my age <laughs> in business. You know, I'm at the at the you know young age of the boomers, but we're retiring. So is most of the workforce now millennials and Gen Z? I think so. Okay, we're we're kind of we're getting to the tipping point now, aren't we? Where and because of that, aren't those millennials especially going to drive the way that work's done? Yeah, they're the people that are in the higher management positions now. Yeah. Speaking of which, let's go to Brendan. (laughs) So I have an interesting question for both Dr. Destiny and Lee, because I've experienced this before where it breaks the norm of millennials uh, and Gen Xers is that when people come from the military, some of them might like that more authoritarian sort of approach because they're just become so used to that. So I would love to hear your take on that because I even had an employee where I still don't understand where we screwed up in the interview process because it was very much, hey, you're going to be responsible. You need to be independent. And then as soon as we got them on, if you did not tell them what to do, they didn't know what to do. So I would just love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's it's interesting, Bryn. The... um... I think a lot of that would have to do with their relative position in the military because certain levels are told what to do, period, where other, you know, higher levels are encouraged to, uh, to be more inventive, to think, to, to think on their feet and whatever else. And it also has to do with, um, you know, the same as in business, it has to do with their leadership. You know, what generation are they are and how authoritarian they are. Uh, I worked for people who were, I'm going to tell you everything to do and how to do it. And you're going to follow it exactly. And I also talked to one, you know, work for people who were like, oh, we need this done. How do you think we should do it? And I always tried, you know, with my people to kind of go the latter approach, you know? So 
you know, tell me how you, I'm going to tell you what to do, but you figure it out. Come ask me if you have questions and, and then let's see what you come up with. And uh, I was quite often surprised because I, I never thought of that. Um, but you were definitely going to have some people who need to be told what to do, especially if they weren't, you know, lifers and they were very junior. Uh, when you get into the more senior ranks, I don't think that's going to be quite, quite an issue. Um, I don't know. I could, Destiny could talk a little more to that, I'm sure. No, I think you touched it uh, pretty well on the head, Lee, about, you know, it really depends on their experiences. And, and I think another problem is there's a lot of assumptions about what military members are looking for or need as they move into the workforce. And so sometimes we may tend to ask questions that don't really like clarify for them or maybe even for ourselves as we're asking those questions, what they need or what they're looking for. And sometimes, you know, maybe maybe in this case, even you said, I don't know where we went wrong. Maybe that that is the assumption is that you did something wrong or you did it you know, ask the right questions, but maybe it's just that person's, you know, that's just how they are. That's how they've always been. Um, there's definitely a lot of research that suggests, you know, institutionalization type of behaviors from the military, but, and there's truth to that. However, they do just like the rest of, you know, regular people go through transition all the time, right? We go through job transitions. We go through like going from, you know, not being a parent to being a parent. Like there's all these things that happen. And so sometimes we put a lot of emphasis on that transition in a way where we're like, well, we just associate everything that maybe is kind of going weirdly wrong or off course to that. So something to think through too. Maybe it's just the way that that person learns or maybe they're not being, you know, engaged. So it's just some food for thought, but yes, Lee touched on it. And I'm not sure if Camilio wanted to speak up, but I saw his hand raised and I think he's got some background in the same, in the same area, but uh, yeah, hopefully that kind of lends to some, some food for thought. All right, Linda Ann, let's go to you. I wanted to just go back to what Brendan had brought up and that um, an individual who you have an interview when you let them know that they have the responsibility for in this job and they're going to be working independently. And when you bring them in, they don't function that way. It may be that that's what they were looking for and they want that, but they haven't been given the skill and coached on how to do that. And so there might be just a, a skill gap and an education gap to get them to that point because if they haven't had the experience of functioning that way, they need a little coaching and nudging to get them there. Um, and it's a, it's a baby step process in a lot of cases. Yeah, it certainly is. Camila, let's go to you. I will add to that uh, a component of assumptions um, and lack of context. There's a lot of, uh, like we her before miscommunication when it comes to translating what is a being military in on the perspective of from of a civilian that never experienced a military um, complexity. Um, so probably so the instruction component of wh where did we fail? What do you think you fail? Uh, what type of com uh, communication was given? Uh, what type of expectation was a person who said you will have more responsibilities? Uh, how did that phrase translate to the person with a previous military experience? What is responsibilities mean for me as the, the recipient of that component? Uh, so it's a, there's a lot of assumptions there uh, when it comes to the translation from the civilian to military lingo and the expected behaviors. I think that is a lot of um, 
like uh, uh, Linda Ann was mentioning earlier, coaching, education, and better communication is asking those questions of, okay, I expect this type of uh, um, behavior, you're going to have more responsibilities. More responsibilities means, or these are examples of sort, some of these responsibilities that you might have. Me as the recipient, uh, if I don't understand that component, or if it's something that uh, doesn't necessarily translate to my um, background, uh, I need to ask questions. So that's, that's a, a significant issue within our Western culture of communication is that we think that we understand the context of the other person, but we don't. And we are afraid of asking questions to clarify because we might seem or be perceived as insecure, uh, not knowing, et cetera, et cetera. So I do believe that there's a, a big, a big gap when it comes to assumptions in communications in that part. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But Dr. Destiny, let me come back to you because I'm, I'm now going to push the conversation <laughs> into, you know, that, that area, uh, because, you know, if we're talking, people are different and we want to establish some norms, uh, but political correctness, you know, you know, I sometimes think, you know, as a North American, I can have my sense of political correctness, but if I've got team members in India or in China, it might not be their political correctness. So how do I dance through that minefield? Yeah, I love that you brought that topic back up because it's perfect. <laughs> you know, one thing you talked about earlier was th those creative juices too. And so there's an interesting study that kind of ties political correctness into creativity. And so it says here that organizations need to deal with the competing forces at play with political correctness. The push and pull between free expression and avoiding giving offense could influence creativity in organizations. Individuals may refrain from suggesting new approaches to problem solving or decision making and fear that these novel approaches could give offense. Maintaining the status quo could also be viewed as less productive, but a safer strategy. The connection between communication and creativity makes the variable a crucial litmus test for organizations. And it says that um, in, in most cases, when people think of political correctness in the workplace, they think of organizational policies dealing with race and sex. And so just interesting to consider this. And you mentioned the same thing with cultural you know, challenges, very, very relevant to what we are experiencing in the workplace right now, very relevant to what's going on in the media. So, um, you know, and, and for somebody like myself, from once again, my background's military, we bring everyone together from all the places, you know, and we, we actually get like cultural awareness training. I know that seems silly and sometimes counterproductive, but it's actually a really good way to like talk and to have conversations and to source sometimes those really uncomfortable places about those policies and, and things and, you know, norms. So that might be some sort of way to translate into organizations is, is there some sort of like awareness or discussion points or uh, education or something like that. So, yeah. Well, I know that, you know, just one example, I, I, <laughs> I've coached a lot of executives about making great eye contact because people don't do it well. You know, we, we, we most people don't make eye contact well, but now, you know, I, and, you know, I've dealt with executives who have come to North America from an Asian country where perhaps, you know, making eye contact means something totally different, you know, and can be seen as aggressive. 
I know with um, you know, a number of indigenous cultures here in North America, they're the same way where they don't want strong eye contact. It's once again, way too aggressive. So it, it, is it imperative now that I understand those different cultures and I relate to them in the way that they want to be related to? You're shaking your head. Yes, I'm on the right yes. track. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think like we all have ownership, right? And how we interact with the world. And why not be better at trying to, like, if we want to, like, most of, it's always a what's in it for me, right? What's in it for me? I want to get my message across. So in order for me to get my message across, the best way I can do that is to understand my audience and to understand what they may like need from me in order to hear me. And so, and if you don't do that, then you're just going to fight the force. And it's the same. It translates into organizations. It translates into communication tactics. It translates into coaching and on and on and on. So definitely why not be more aware and more, you know, and, and, and think about it before you approach a conversation or a suggestion or a recommendation to someone. So I think, I think you're an acting teacher. <laughs> Amanda, let's go to you. So some of this is just resonating with some of my past experience. Um, when I was an undergrad trying to find my way, like, you know, as all IOs, as we've been talking about, where do I want to go? Generalist, specialist, et cetera. But there was this one um, l- very large multinational corporation that is within the L&D area that their organizational psychologists um, travel worldwide to meet the needs of their clients. And when they are having someone that's traveling to another place or that's going to be that representative, that um, company ended up doing cultural immersion training through like experiential learning. So they'd be sending that individual to that culture to for the purposes of absorbing it and doing that platinum rule of learning the norms, the mores, et cetera, that is necessary to work effectively with those individuals. Um, Because like as Linda Ann ended up saying in the chat that platinum rule is much more effective versus the golden rule, because as we want to be treated is not how someone else wants to be treated. So by meeting the person where they're at, you're getting more buy-in to get their participation in whatever it is that you're trying to provide as a service. And um, it's one thing that we've started talking about just related to DNI is that what can we start doing more experiential like? Uh, we've got places that are around the cities here where there are um, cultural events. Um, There was just an Irish thing that happened recently. And I'm sure a lot of these um, events happen in other um, states. Uh, But then there's also like Globetown markets where there is, you go there and there you're exposed to a bunch of different sorts of food and a bunch of sorts of different cultures. So for, because my, our children are growing up in a way different um, ethnically diverse world than what it was that even I grew up in. So I'm trying to do my part to expose him to these. So he's not, he doesn't have the, the standard mindset that we may have grown up with because the world he's growing up with is completely different. Yeah, totally hundred percent. I, I mean, <laughs> I sometimes remind my daughters that I was alive before the internet. Uh, and they can't imagine what life was like. Lee, let's go to you. You know, I mean, one of the the first thing you have to do when you're going to deal with a minefield is recognizing there's a minefield, right? So, uh, you know, I found one of the most effective ways in dealing with people from other cultures is simply to ask them. You know, uh, you know, during my time in the Navy, I served with people from all kinds of places around the world and and just in different places in the U.S., 
that were were very different from the way that I was raised. And so if there was a question, I would just, you know, genuine curiosity. So tell me about it. You know, how would your culture deal with this particular situation? You know, well, you seem like that kind of bothered you. You know, what would you have done differently? You know, what, what did I miss? I want to learn from you to, to communicate better with you so we can work better together. And, uh, you know, I had the, the, the you know, the first time that I, I crossed some cultural thing and it was like, <laughs> I was like, whoa, I missed something, you know. And, and so I started making it a pointed effort to learn about people and the differences. And it's, it's astounding. You're like, oh, yeah, that's a norm for me, but it's taboo for you. So, okay, well, we need to both understand where we are so that we can meet somewhere in between there so that you know that I'm not trying to offend you and I know a way to try not to offend you. And uh, I found that that's, that's pretty effective. And it's just fascinating. I mean, other cultures uh, is, is, are fascinating. Give, give me somebody different. I know all about Western culture. <laughs> I want to learn something different. I, but Dr. Destiny, let me bring it back to you because, you know, what Lee's talking about is asking good questions. Um, which, you know, is really hard for some people to do. Uh, but how do we ask good questions? How do we ask, go to those places where we might be kicking the hornet's nest here if we're asking somebody else about their culture? They may feel intimidated. They may, you know, but why are you asking me? I'm in North America. I don't want to talk about my culture. Um, how, how, how does, you know, someone bridge that gap? I think it's important first and foremost to, you know, come at any kind of, you know, once again, engagement with curiosity. Uh, If you always have curiosity, you're always going to be more open-minded. You're even going to be able to kind of tap into that inner coach that you may have. Uh, If you, you know, if you don't really have great coaching skills, there's a lot of really good books and ways to kind of, you know, get used to those questions because really coaching questions are about not only are they geared towards curiosity, but they empower people to want to answer you and not only want to answer you, but they empower them to like, because when you ask a coaching question, you open, 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 open. So think of it as an opening. And now what do people naturally want to do? They want to close that. And so they close it usually with solution based forward focused because they want to put the accountability back to you. So they have to close it and put it back on accountability. So I think, you know, if somebody doesn't want to share about them, that may say that, you know, maybe they're not used to being vulnerable. Maybe they are feeling vulnerable. Maybe, maybe you've kind of triggered something. And if you do, if you're just curious about it and you don't, maybe they don't feel like you're coming at them with a you know, uh, a goal like uh, to get something out of this, then, then, you know, and plus it it also has to be a lot to do with trust and rapport. So you have to kind of give people the benefit of the doubt when they may not answer you or may not want to talk about something. Cause usually that's because it's triggering, opening a wound or making them feel, you know, uncomfortable. So something to think about too. Well, you know, I, I've, I've learned now this year that if I want to talk to an indigenous elder, I Oh no, we lost Tom. It's <laughs> part of their cultural norm. Uh, so it was a great experience for me and I may be old, but I keep listening. Uh, Jeannie, let's go to you. Well, I think some of it also is what, what Lee has already um, stated and, and Dr. Destiny as well, but um, it's opening it up with, 
maybe an apology and saying, you know, forgive my ignorance or, or trying to understand. I'm sorry if I cause offense or just just an opening line of I really don't know your culture, but I, I want to learn. And so those communication skills just at the very beginning is incredibly important. Don't just go in asking questions and barricading yourself in. But it's more about just help me to learn, help me to understand what is this, what is that, you know, and, and not just firing questions, but genuinely being authentic and, and genuine in asking those questions. And, you know, as far as that goes. Does it come down to establishing trust? I mean, if you, if you really want to get into a deep conversation with someone, do we need to establish that trust factor first? Absolutely. Because right. that rapport, that trust is what is going to build on that relationship. And that relationship just deepens as you go through. So, Dr. Destiny, let, let, let's go back to all those research articles that you actually looked at. Are, are, we, are we on track with what you've seen? Because we, we not only seem to have a lot of questions, but we've got some really good answers. Um, are there good answers out there for us? Or is it still people just asking the question? I think... Once again, I mean, I, I feel like it. maybe it's a generational difference. You talked about that a lot. Uh, maybe it's, you know, a, a lot of things. Maybe it's, you know, more focus and emphasis on, you know, DEI, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, and, and all of these things kind of coming together. But I think people are just more open to discussion and to, you know, providing, you know, solutions in rep making recommendations. And so you're and that I think that is why in the research, even it was a little bit like, wow, these are kind of controversial. I feel like if I would have researched this topic five years ago, you're going to be talking about a whole lot of different things, you know, but like, look where we are now. We're kind of opening this wound that's been like kind of just, you know, festering for a while that people just weren't comfortable enough talking about. But with all these like societal movements towards and shift towards and pendulum swings towards, I think people are just more open to having these open dialogues and those who are not are feeling it, right? They're like, ah, it's uncomfortable. And why are people asking me? And you asked something a minute ago about trust and do you have to have trust to have conversations? I think not, not necessarily. I feel like the conversations convene the foundation to the trust. So, you know, it doesn't always have to be like this way or that way. It's simply just, you know, thinking about, things from a different perspective. Um, it seems pretty simple, like, oh yeah, maybe I should just do that. But we don't always do that because we have a lot of biases. Um, there's even, you know, interesting stuff about political correctness. We go back and um, implicit bias. Um, look at, you know, for instance, implicit bias training um, was designed to address inadvertent behaviors and microaggressions that could give offense in the workplace. And these have been Im implemented by major corporations such as Coca-Cola. We remember some of that stuff, Facebook, uh, Google. So think about that. Think about the way that the world has changed and then people demanding responses because dialogue has been, a narrative has been started. So I think we're, you know, it's kind of an exciting place, I think, to be right now in organizational behavior and talking about this because we're at a great turning point right now. That's just my two cents. <laughs> I agree. It's a great turning point, but there's a lot of fear out there. Um, <laughs> maybe we can take advantage of that. Linda Ann, let's go to you. 
So I, I just had a, a couple of things that, you know, based on the, the comment about trust and so forth, for some organizations, it it takes a while. Trust is a thing that uh, has a time factor of attached to it and it's not something that you can readily establish in a conversation too. it takes it takes a little bit of, of more time the other thing that I, I wanted to condemn was you know when I was making some notes about today's conversation and the topic of new social norms in the workplace and my thought was are we really there yet because norms are a generally accepted behavior and I don't know that we have generally accepted behaviors for our communications or even how we interact in in how we're doing work, you know, so I think we're all in the process, the middle of trying to figure them out. I think we have real norms yet. How, how long do you think it'll take us? <laughs> <laughs> Where are oh, we going to be here? Those concrete answers, you know. <laughs> I'm not sure in five or 10 years, we'll, we, I'm not still going to be asking the same question, uh, but maybe after five and 10 years, we'll have a little bit more, you know, knowledge behind us. Uh, Dr. Destiny, we're almost out of time. We got about five minutes left. Um, once again, any other stuff from the research that you were doing that you know, we can squeeze in in the next couple of minutes? Maybe, because I think this one is really important. And I maybe this will give people a lasting thought. So there has been studies, and I'm sure you all know it, maybe you have personally felt it, about your social networking sites and social networking profiles having an impact on organizational decision-making processes. For example, a national survey of 2,300 hiring managers and human resource professionals found that 70% of employers had used social network sites to screen job applicants, and 38% of employers had rejected a candidate because their posts showed evidence of alcohol consumption or drug use. And so there was actually like a study done that talked about uh, they they did a study that rated perceptions of hiring managers on social network sites and people that had more family oriented posts and more family like pictures were rated in a very different fashion than those who had any not even one alcohol related post or picture. Uh, so while we want to pretend sometimes like that's not a factor. These things can, in fact, be a bias or a factor in organizational decision-making processes. So food for thought, and I don't know if we have time to ask for stuff or opinions, but I feel like that one can bring up a lot for people. <laughs> I, I think we, we need a whole show <laughs> to look at this topic because I, I, you know, years of teaching in post-secondary with young actors, you know, one of the first discussions we had with them was take a look at your Facebook Take a look at all of your social media, because if you don't think that if you're up for a role with a major you know, film organization, that they're not looking at your social media, they're trying to find out who you are. Uh, plus, and I'm, I'm not sure if this is coming to the business world yet, but in the acting field, they'll actually look at your social media to see how many followers you have, because they want to use your followers to market. So are, are, are we seeing the same thing that, you know, business that, if I'm hiring somebody in communications, I want to make sure that their social media and you know is great and they've got lots of followers because that will affect my business positively. 
Interesting. And I, I want to say the reason why the alcohol was the factor here is because it said that drinking alcohol is generally considered a violation of workplace norms because alcohol consumption can have a negative impact on work performance. What's interesting about this too, is just like a, you know, throw in real fast is the military sees this different too. And so do certain organizations. I have been in organizations where if I don't have a beer in hand at a social event, then people have a lot of assumptions about me. So, you know, we had the whole, you know, under like lying thing where just, you know, nurse the beer, just hold it close and, you know, put it back on the counter when you're done, uh, even if you didn't take a sip. So just really interesting that depending on where you are working and where you are landing, how that can really change the conversation and the narrative. So just so if you're looking for work, the first question should be, so what's your culture? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely but, an interview process. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Destiny. It's been a great hour, a uh, great topic once again today. And thank you very much for that research. It has uh, spurned a lot of conversation today. And I think, you know, as Linda Ann says, we're still figuring this out. We, we haven't come up to any norms yet. Maybe there's a few that we could talk about that we're kind of starting to establish, but it's going to take a while. And do you, let me ask you this last question. Do you think IOs are ideally situated to start answering some of these questions or at least do the research? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, I may, I might be biased, but because <laughs> I am one. <laughs> However, we come at it from an evidence-based approach. So even if we have our own biases, we know how to set them aside and come out with best practices based on, you know, industry and, and research and things like that. So absolutely. Uh, and why not add a little bit of different flavor than maybe you're used to by adding an IO into your, you know, workforce. So. Well, it's definitely a time for growth, which is, is great because, and, you know, the knowledge and information that HR and IO and recruiters have really needs to be shared because, you know, someone like me, who's none of those uh, is learning a lot. Uh, and will help me as I move forward as an entrepreneur. Uh, so thank you very much, everyone, for joining us once again today. Uh, we will be back in one week's time. And next week, we'll be looking at giving effective feedback. Um, I think we're all pretty good at that. We've seemed to have done pretty well today. But hopefully, we've got some advice. Um, Jeremy, I think we'll be back with us next week. Dr. Destiny? Yes, you will. All right. You'll, you'll get a better photo next time. <laughs> All right. Thank you much, everyone, for joining us. And once again, we'll see you in one week's time. Until then, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? Don't forget to check out our corporate, career boost, recruiter, and even student memberships at seabock.com. <laughs>